Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Titus chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, Titus chapter 1. We are looking at church leadership. As you recall, we've been talking about what makes a healthy church, what does a healthy church look like, and we are in the part of that series that healthy church, we understand that a healthy church has solid, um, Christ-centered leadership. And last week was part one because it dealt with the character of a leader. Today is part two because we're going to deal with all the messy stuff about leadership in terms of what does it look like? How do we actually have church leadership and who should we have and how many should we have and all those questions. And if you remember, the Bible's very clear on the kind of person that it is. It's not super clear on the structure. Now, we're given some guidelines, we're given some boundaries, but we're not given answers to should they be paid or not paid. We're given some guidelines, but we're not told specifically it must be this. Uh, We're not told how many leaders we're supposed to have. We're not told how the the, the leaders must be um, uh, raised up. We're given some guidelines again, but, but these are not definites. They're simply boundaries that God has given us. And the reason for that is the most important part of church leadership is not how they do, but it's who they are. Don't miss this. Godly leaders can lead in any structure. Ungodly leaders cannot lead in any structure. So the character of the leader is what truly matters. And there was a list of qualifications. We spent an entire message on that last week. But let's go to verse 9. Because verse 9 is where Titus chapter 1 verse 9. Where we're going to pick up on the job or the responsibility of a leader. Now when I say leader. There are basically three leaders in the church. I guess official leaders. Right? You have Pastors or elders, shepherds, overseers, that's one group of leaders. Then you have deacons, that's another group of leaders. And then you have teachers. And that, that, that actually could be part of the overseer elder or it could be uh, on a different level. So we'll just kind of we'll say it like that. You, you know, Sunday school teachers and stuff, we've got teachers that aren't elders. But at the end of the day, there are a few leadership, official leadership positions. But the leadership positions have enormous responsibility. For the case of elders. Now remember, elder, shepherd, overseer, pastor. Those are all synonymous when we're talking about this here. The role of elder has one predominant um, role over every other role. So the main thing that that person does or those uh, people do... Verse 9, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. So the number one job of an elder, of a pastor, of a shepherd, is to preach and teach the word of God. That is the single most important thing that a pastor does. Why? 
Because the foundation of who the church is, is the word of God. God's word gives us our instructions for everything. If we want to know where we're supposed to go to ministry, God's word gives us direction for that. If we want to know what our mission is, God's word gives us direction of that. If we want to know how to have a, a marriage that is holy, God's word gives us direction for that. If we want to know how to raise our kids, God's word. So the number one job of an elder is to teach God's word. Now, in teaching God's word, there's really two parts of that. There is the proclamation of God's word. That's what's coming out of our mouth. And then there's also the demonstration of God's word. That's what's coming out of our life. The proclamation and the demonstration must be congruent. That's why character matters so much. That's why you want uh, an elder who is blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness and rebellion. Um, one who must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not excessive drinker, not bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. That's why you want those characteristics, because the life of the elder is an example of what it means to follow Christ. Now, we got to be very careful here, because we all know that every one of us has feet of clay. Right? It's not that, that the elders are perfect and the rest of the church aren't. No. It's that the elders are called by God to demonstrate what it means to live out the word of God on a daily basis. And the word of God gives us instruction on what to do when we sin. So that's where accountability, that's where confession, that's where repentance comes in. So whoever would be the shepherds of this church must be uh, transparent in their life. There must be an understanding. That the imperfect is called to lead the imperfect. In the name of the perfect. But nevertheless. The word of God is the most important thing. That we preach. That we proclaim. And that we demonstrate. Now the reason for that. Is because the word of God. Will show us what we are to do. But it will also correct the things we are doing wrong. And if you look at the next part of this passage, verse 10 says, For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. And then it goes on and it, and it, and it clarifies more about that. So the role of an elder is to be an overseer of the church first and foremost in what the word of God says. So we'll say it this way. They hold the church Faithful and true to biblical, sound biblical doctrine. By both encouraging sound biblical doctrine and refuting bad biblical doctrine. And believe me when I tell you that it is a constant struggle to battle against unsound, unbiblical doctrine. It is constant. It comes from every direction. It comes from the media. It comes from within the church, from people who sometimes are, are, are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Sometimes people come in and they, they listen to these things. They want to bring them in and start teaching people. The job of the elders is to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. Let's go back to what God's word says. God's word says this. What you're teaching is that. So we're not going to teach that. We're not going to believe that. And the scripture is very clear. It says, silence those. That, that's, not a, that's not an easy thing. To silence those who are teaching false doctrine. And you say, well, what gives you the right to determine what is sound doctrine and what is false doctrine? Well, that's a great question. 
And the answer to that is this. We have proper biblical hermeneutics of how to interpret the scripture. You follow those principles. Not only do we follow those principles, but we also have a history as a church of interpreting scripture as well. So we take all of that into account and we teach what the scripture teaches based on how we interpret it following that process. Now, the truth is, we still sometimes have to wrestle with things. I think last week we demonstrated that when I said, look, this is what the passage says. It could mean these four different things. This is what I think it means, but some people think it means this other thing. And to be honest with you, that's the best we got. But you know what? That's at least integrity in interpreting the scripture. The truth is, we're constantly trying to get to the core of what does the scripture say. And sometimes we're going to sometimes we're going to have to come back and say, "You know what? I think we got this wrong." But the way we do that is by the church holding the elders accountable and challenging in a in a in a godly way, challenging, "Is this what the scripture really says?" Then the elders should say, yeah, that's what the scripture really says. Or they say, you know what, let's take another look at that. This is one of the cases, uh, strong cases for a plurality of elders within a church. That way you don't have one person declaring, thus saith the Lord, as much as you have a group of godly people saying, yeah, this is what the scripture says. Does that make sense? So the number one job is to proclaim the scripture. But there's more than just that. There is an overall responsibility so if you will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. There's an overall responsibility for elders. Again, elders, shepherds, pastors. And that overall responsibility has, has great weight. It has great authority. But it also has great accountability. And so this passage gives us the nuts and bolts of those boundaries of how a, a, a shepherd, an elder, should be both treated for the good and for the bad, okay? Actually, before we do there, let, let, me, let me have you go to another passage because I want to finish up my thought on their responsibility. Go to Acts chapter 20. Just put your finger in 1 Timothy. Go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. Acts chapter 20, verses 28. So the Bible tells us that the elders are to, verse 28, are to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as an overseer to shepherd the church of God. Which he purchased with his own blood. Now we mentioned this again last week. But I want to come back to it because I want to remind you that elders, pastors, shepherds are to be on guard for two different areas. One for ourselves. That's why Paul tells Timothy, guard your life and your doctrine closely. Why? Because if your doctrine as an elder slips, then you're going to influence the whole church and that's going to be a bad thing. So we're on guard for ourselves and for the people that God has put in, 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 in our care. So for the flock. So what does it mean to be on guard? It means that we're never getting lazy. 
It means we're always looking at the possibility of the enemy infiltrating our thoughts. It means that we're always, um, always on the watch for something that's wrong. Now, what that really means for ourselves is we're, we're guarding ourselves um, and, 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 and not getting complacent. But for guarding the church, it means we're looking over the horizon and trying to see the dangers. And as a, as a pastor, what I've noticed in my, my, my experience and in, in just doing this for many, many years, I've noticed that there are certain telltale signs that a person in the church is heading in a bad direction. And it's, and it's like clockwork. First they do this, and then they do this, and, it, and they just slip away. And if we're not careful, if nobody deals with that, then that person does, goes the way of so many others before, and they just disappear or they leave the faith or whatever but it but it's not going from here to here it's a gradual progression now how many of y'all have ever seen that in somebody else's life or maybe even in your life it's like predictable so the job of the elders is to approach those who they see falling into those patterns and say hey i love you how can i help now that is only good if the person is receptive to that uh, word in their life. So in other words, I can't tell you the number of people I've had conversations with and I've said, listen, I see this and what's going on? Oh, we're fine. We're fine. We're good. And, and in your heart of hearts and in your mind, you're going, you're not listening. And I know what the next step is. Because it, 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 it happens consistently. Now, here's one of the things we talked about um, as a staff this past week. A lot of times when that happens, there is anger or, or frustration at the person. And, and, and to be honest with you, it hurts when that happens with people. It, it is a personal, we, we take it personally as elders. But here's, here's what we have to believe and here's what's true. That person, that family, that uh, whatever, they're not the enemy. So there's no reason to be angry. There's no reason um, to break fellowship. What we need to do is deal with the real enemy, which is Satan himself. Because the devil is a liar. He's a thief. He comes to kill and to steal and to destroy, right? He's the father of lies. And so rather than dealing uh, uh, with, with a person, then what we're trying to do is switch our focus to dealing with God. Because we battle not with flesh, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so what we're trying to do as the leaders of the church is say, look, we see this happening in a family or in a, church, in a person. And so we are doing our best to go to God. God, would you intercept them? Would you intervene in their life? God, would you do something to give us the ability to speak into their life and to help them? Because the path that they're going is going to wind up in a bad place. Does that make sense? That is the role of an elder, to be overseers of the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed us over. Now, that is a great weight. It is a tremendous weight because it means that we have to be looking at the flock. You know, the old adage uh, for, for preachers is this. If the shepherd doesn't smell like the sheep, he's not a shepherd. Now, that's not insinuating that sheep smell, but actual sheep do smell. The point of that is that if a shepherd is always in an ivory tower and never out in the field with the sheep, then he's not doing his job. 
To oversee is, is to be with the people and to be watching. So on the fire ground, if you go to fire academy and you, you are trained to be a firefighter, what you'll learn is that the most important person on the fire ground are the firefighters. Are the people who were there to put out the fire. It's not the people inside the building. They're important. But you as a firefighter are the most important person. Because if you're not considering that. Then you are going to cause extra trouble. And extra problems. And you will multiply the situation. Because you've not thought about your own safety. So it doesn't mean that they don't go into buildings that are on fire. It means that they're considering, how do I do this safely so that I don't create a bigger problem? But for shepherds, it's the same way. We guard ourselves because our job is to guard the flock. Now, one person on the fire ground, I switched to firefighting, sorry. One person on the fire ground, actually everybody's a safety monitor, but there's one person particularly whose main job it is, is to notice what's going on. They're always looking, hey, where is their problem? They're, they're the ones who are seeing into the possibilities. That in a lot of ways is what a shepherd does. A shepherd is for, for not foretelling, but looking past the immediate and saying, if this, this, and this happens, then this is the result. But that also goes both ways. That's why when we see somebody who's, who's showing an interest in certain ministry things, we say, hey, let's put you in a little bit different role and try to spur the, the work of God inside of you, try to fan the flame. That's a dangerous thing because you're taking someone who's, who's roughly gifted and you're putting them in a position that needs gifting and now you're going, man, this is more work. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did? He took 12 disciples and he said, hey, you guys are complete losers, but I'm going to teach you how to change the world. He didn't say it that way, but he could have said it that way. Think about it, right? So that's what a shepherd does. All right, so now turn to First uh, Timothy chapter 5. Now, when I, was, when I was studying this text to teach today, there was a little bit of, um, a little bit of anxiety for the thought of, man, this is a, this is a self, um, you know, I, I, I thought, what, what if, what if what if people are thinking I'm going to teach this text in order to get something? And then I realized, hey, dummy. And I literally said that to myself. Hey, dummy. It's actually what God says. So you didn't write this, right? God wrote it. But in this text, we're going to find the blessing, but also the accountability. Because you're not held to the same standard as an elder is. It's just different. Here, I'll show you. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Says the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. And I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus and the elect. Uh, and the elect angels to observe all these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone else as an elder or anyone as an elder. And don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. 
Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them in judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. There is so much in this passage. I told First Baptist folks, I said, I feel like I took a bite of a sandwich and then tried to talk while I was trying to chew and swallow it. There's just too much here for the time we have, but let's try. Verse 17, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. What does that mean? What does it mean that the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor? Now that word, that phrase double honor means two things. It means actual honor. Like giving honor, respecting and, and, and lifting them up and, and seeing them in an in a, in a, in a honorable way. But the second part is understood to be remuneration. So they're worthy of honor and pay. Now, this is something that has been a question for a lot of different people. And if you go to the Internet, you'll find people who say, oh, preachers should never be paid. Everybody should be volunteer, 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 volunteer. Well, that directly contradicts what the scripture says, because the very next passage. And by the way, it's not just in First Timothy. You also find this in First Thessalonians. Um, you find this in, in Hebrews. And so it, it, it's it's in more than one place in scripture, but. In verse 18, the Bible says, for the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Now, I've never known what that has meant. I've always thought I've known what it, what it meant. You know, I'm thinking the ox is doing something with the grain. But I never really knew until this week. I said, you know what, I'm going to do what any self-respecting preacher is going to do, and I'm going to YouTube it. And so I YouTubed ox treading grain. Now, I want you to do this when you get home. Don't do it now. Do it when you get home because it's really cool. What, what they would do is they would take oxen, three or four of them, and they would tie them together side by side so that they were all in a row. And then they would take their grain out of the fields and they would spread it out on a, on a hard surface. And then, and this is like a two or three day process. It's not an easy thing. It's very, very um, just time consuming. They would then take the oxen and they would push the oxen onto the piles of grain. And then they would, they would move the oxen in circles. So the ones I saw, you had four or five guys and they had sticks and they were kind of making the oxen just walk in circles on this grain. And as you watched it, you could see that the grain was separating. You had the different pods and the, the wheat and the chaff and all that kind of stuff. And it was trampling it down, making it usable then for making bread and for feed and things like that. But as you watched them tread the grain, you also saw the oxen with grain in their mouth. So they were treading the grain with food in their mouth. So they were eating while they were doing it. And they were using the grain as their food. That's exactly what the Bible means. That a worker is worthy of his wages. So an elder is worthy of double honor. They're worthy of being paid for the job that they do. That's what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul deals with this. He says, look, it's not me. He, he, he actually kind of makes it, he makes it clear, but he also gives us an, uh, the option. So he says, look, as Paul, I haven't charged anybody anything. I make my own way. I do tents and, and I am preaching free. But I could take a salary from it. And I would deserve a salary from it. Because preaching the gospel is a hard, but it's an honorable task. And so the answer to the question, should we have volunteer or paid, is both. 
There's biblical precedent for both of them. I think in our world, though, trying to operate a church with totally volunteer elders would be virtually impossible. If, if you have any sort of ministry at all. I know, I know somebody somewhere does it, but there are so many things that are involved in being the church nowadays that it would be almost impossible to do that on a volunteer basis if you had to make your living doing something else. So Paul says here to Timothy, give double honor, especially to those who work hard. Oh, by the way, let me go back to the oxen. So the funniest part, and I hope you, I hope you get the right video because one of the guys who were helping in this oxen treading adventure, one of the guy's sole job is to hold a pot and to walk around behind the oxen. And he's like going like this. He's, he's, catching, the, he's catching the stuff. That, and the reason is they don't want that into the grain. I'm not joking. I laughed and laughed and laughed. And I was like, yeah, that's a. So what are you? I'm an oxen poop catcher. That's what I am. That's what I do for a living. I walk around behind oxen. But you know, then I started thinking, if that guy didn't do his job or if he didn't do it well, all of us would be eating bread that we wouldn't want to eat. And you could spiritualize that all you want. But the point is very clear, isn't it? So that's that's treading. So go back to the verse, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That phrase, work hard in the Greek, means to work to the point of fatigue or exhaustion. It would be easy, and it is easy, for preachers to have easy lives if they want them. For the most part, the day is self-directed. For the most part, if, as long as they keep people happy, make, think, make people think everything's good, as long as, long as there's not a lot of... A lot of, you know, uh, uh, things going wrong, then a preacher could have a pretty easy job. They really could. They could live a pretty good life if they didn't really love the sheep. But the Bible says those aren't the people worthy of double honor. It's when they work to the point of fatigue or exhaustion, specifically in preaching and teaching. And again, that's living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. They're worthy of double honor. I can tell you that ministry never ends. Especially if you love the flock. It never ends. What we want and need here. What you want and need here. Are elders who love you enough. That they will lay down their life for you. Now some people might say that's radical. And I would say well did Jesus not command his shepherds to be as he was. Was his command to his shepherds not to love and to feed the sheep. That is a cost required there. That's a cost. But there's a blessing with it. So with the cost there's also the blessing. But then there's also the accountability. The next verse in verse 19 says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. So the accountability is elders are not 
able to just direct people to do whatever they want them to do without the people saying, hey, that's not right. And how do they know if that's not right? It's based on what the scripture says. Now, this is a, a, a tough passage to look at because what it's saying is not to accept an accusation, which really means don't entertain an accusation unless there's more than one person bringing that accusation. And the idea here is there's proof. There's something that is, that is bona fide. Hey, this is sin on the part of the elder. So when one person comes with an accusation, the correct response for the people of God is not even to entertain it. Which, by the way, if you don't entertain an accusation unless it's brought by more than one, what you're doing is you're shutting down this thing that we call gossip. What you should do and what I should do when we hear something about someone is go directly to the someone with the person giving the information. You know what? Let's go talk to them about that and let's see what's going on. Why? Because that's what the Bible says to do. But now, if it is supported by two or three witnesses, the accountability for an elder is much greater than the accountability for a layperson. With, with a layperson, you deal with sin differently. In Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, go to them personally. You go to them personally, you deal with it, and you're good. And if they don't accept it, you go with the brother. And then if they accept it, that's good. And then if, if, that's not, if they don't accept it, then you bring it before the church. But for an elder, if they sin in a way that violates who they're supposed to be, then that is a public rebuking. That's scary. Anybody want to sign up for being an elder now? Why is that scary? That's scary because our life as a reflection of what it means to be a Christ follower also means that the things that we're not repentant of have got to be brought out. And so the reason that it's brought out is so that the church can not only see the, the proper way to deal with it, but so also that the rest of the people who are considering that same kind of behavior would say, you know what, I don't ever want to have to stand on that stage and be rebuked. It serves as a warning. And so the scripture tells us so that the rest of us, or so the, that the rest will be afraid. And then it says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ and the angels to observe these things. Now listen, he just said, I charge you, I solemnly charge you before Christ, before um, God and before the elect angels. So all of the heavens to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. There is a temptation for friends to just kind of push things under the table. Somebody we like or somebody that has great skill or somebody that has great uh, um, Influence. Well, let's, let's just, let's just kind of hide it and put it back under the table. And we'll just let them slip away without anybody noticing. And we'll just kind of make up some excuse and just say, you know, oh, they just doing whatever. The Bible says that we're not to do that. It says we're not to show favoritism. We're supposed to do this without prejudice. Now, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds harsh. But God said it for a reason. He said it because leaders are held... To a high standard. 
So I tell you as a church, if I am violating the scripture in a way that disqualifies me to be a pastor of this church, you must bring it to the church. The elders must do that. Because that's the only way to be in a right standing with scripture. Whew. You better believe though, I'm going to watch my life closely. Because I don't want to have to go through that. All right, so let's go to the next part. It says, then he, and he, talks, and he talks to Timothy. He says, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Most theologians think that what this means is that Timothy was, was abstaining from any type of alcohol at all because it was a, uh, uh, he just wanted to stay all the way over on this side of the, of the line. And yet there was some illness going on because the water was not super clean. He was saying, look, look, take a little bit of wine for your stomach and, and make sure that it's, it, it's okay so that your physical body is not paying the price for it. And, and so the kind of the sense is, don't be legalistic, but, but be reasonable. That's kind of what I took away from that. Don't, don't, be, don't be over here to the point of where you're, where you're, you're making a rule that's, that's hindering your own ability to, um, uh, uh, to function properly and, and health, healthy. That's just one, one, the main thing that I read from, the, from the, the, the study of it. And he said, some people's sins are obvious preceding them in judgment, but the sins of others surface later. This is, I think, the reason why we go back up and say, rebuke them before the church. Because the scripture says, be careful or be warned, your sin will find you out. I can't tell you the number of times, and you probably remember times as well, where sin in the past, years later, has resurfaced. And it has ruined either a ministry or a platform or a life. Can you think of some things like that? There's, there's one particular pastor that just, just killed us. There was some sin in the past. And if you look at the situation, you would almost say, you would without a doubt say, I totally get why that, why that happened. If you knew the details of that, you would say, you know what? I understand how it could have gotten that way. And yet, that was dealt with privately through all the parties, and it, was, and it was put to bed. And then in the last year, somebody brought it to the surface, and it has effectively ended the ministry of somebody who has impacted the kingdom of God in ways that we cannot even imagine, like worldwide impact. And the jury is still out as to whether or not they still have a ministry that can be revived at all. But that was because. Things that were dealt with. Were dealt with in private. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we do that. Except to be as transparent as possible. I'm just not sure how we do that. Another famous apologist. Robbie Zacharias. I hate even to call the name. But it's the same thing. The scripture tells us what's going to happen. It says some people's sins are obvious, preceding them in judgment, but the sins of others will surface later. I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather face my sin on earth rather than have a damaged legacy forever. Because wouldn't it be better to be able to deal with it and at least confront it 
and say, hey, I repent. Wouldn't that be better? Nevertheless, likewise, the good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. What I think that means is this. I think that if you are a faithful shepherd, you can't hide the fact that you're a faithful shepherd. You don't have to tell people, hey, I'm a faithful shepherd. Because if you're a faithful shepherd, if you're a faithful elder, the fruit will be obvious in the life of the church for centuries to come. Now, the starting point of elder at this church, the starting point of any leader at this church is right here. If you won't pick this up, you cannot be a leader. That is a declaration. That is not an option. Here's why. Because Jesus himself got up from reclining at the table. He put on an outer garment. He filled a wash basin with water. He knelt down at his disciples' feet and he began to wash them. And he said things like, the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who is the servant. He commanded his disciples, just as I'm doing this to you, you do this to others. If Jesus himself was not too holy to pick up a toilet brush, then you and I can't be too holy to pick up a toilet brush. So that being said, the pastors of this church will lead the way in serving. If there's a toilet to be cleaned, it will not be beneath us to clean it ourselves. If there's mercy that needs to be given, we will be the ones to give mercy first. If there's something that needs to be done that's not glamorous, we will be the one to do it first. Why? Because this is the pathway to leadership here. Now, the, the hard part for me is that I, I want to stay doing this. Because I feel compelled that I'm supposed to do this. And, and the problem with that is, and I, so he, just kind of telling myself, the other day we decorated, when I say we, I mean y'all decorated in here doing trees and stuff. And I find myself wanting to, to help do things. And then I realized... They're doing it better than you could do it. Get out of the way. So I had to go and I sat and sit down. And it was everything I could do to sit down because I wanted to be a part of the thing. So that's a struggle. That's a real struggle. Because I, I don't ever want anybody to say, hey, he, he just, he's just directing people. He's never in it. But the truth is, if I'm in it, I'm going to mess it up most of the time. So what I'm trying to do, this is just, this is just sharing the personal thing. I'm trying to pick up the brush first and then pass it on. But know that if I pass it on, it's simply because I don't want to deprive you of the joy of serving. That's it. Um, in First Baptist, we have a, a family whose son, um, son or son-in-law was the commander of one of the space shuttles. So like he was in charge of the entire space shuttle up in space. And he told me this morning, he said, you know, uh, my son-in-law was told your number one job in space 
is to clean the toilets. Like literally clean the toilets in the space shuttle. As the commander. Like he's the guy that makes all the calls. He picked up the toilet brush. And the reason was, his superior said, they need to see that you are willing to clean toilets. Now I thought that was pretty cool. How is it that the world gets it and sometimes we don't? So I was going to give everybody a toilet brush today. But I couldn't find 100 toilet brushes. And actually, uh, I didn't want to spend more than a dollar on them. So this is going to hang on my wall. If you ever want to borrow it, come and borrow it. But it's going to remind me and it's going to remind you that this is the pathway to leadership. Amen? All right. So that is, um, that is what we're looking for, for elders. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in the first of the year, we're going to have to make some decisions on what our structure looks like. I need you to go back and study the scripture and then ask yourself who in the congregation fits this biblical requirement. Who is a servant? Who meets those requirements? Who do I want to be an overseer of my soul? Now, how do we, how do we get elders? Well, in scripture, there's really three different groups that, that, uh, that made elders happen. First, it was the apostles that appointed them. Then it was Titus and Timothy that would appoint them. And then it was the elders who would appoint elders. But you have to admit, they were just starting. So we're kind of starting as well. So we'll have to figure out how we do it. I think what I'd like to see is for you as the church, for us as the church, to appoint a few of the men that we believe are biblically qualified to that position. And then we're going to lay hands on them and anoint them and then ask them to lead. And we're going to hold them to that standard as well. That's kind of what I envision, but obviously, uh, as the church, we're congregational, so the church has to decide that. All right? Kind of thick stuff today, right? Hope it was helpful. Um, by the way, preaching and teaching. Work hard at preaching and teaching. You know the difference between the two? Preaching, typically, is proclamation for a heart movement or heart change. So I'm wanting somebody to do something. I'm wanting somebody to have that aha moment. That's usually what preaching is. Teaching is understood to be just faithfully plodding through the text, just understanding the deep uh, uh, parts of Scripture. From this platform, we do both. We teach and we preach. But you need to know that my preference is preaching. I much prefer just to preach, but both are important. So we you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment? Our, uh, those who are serving the elements, if you'll come on up. I want to give an invitation this morning for a few different things. Number one, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to salvation. It's by grace you're saved through faith, not of works. If you've never trusted Christ, I want to invite you to repent of your sin. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner and I know I don't deserve forgiveness. But I believe that Jesus Christ came and he died, was buried and rose again in my place. So I confess him with my mouth today that Jesus is Lord. If you need to be saved today, I want to invite you to do that. The second invitation is if your life has some things that are not honoring to Christ Jesus, I want to invite you just to, to deal with God on that. And then after your heart is ready, 
as we sing this morning this very simple song as a prayer, I want to invite you to come and partake of the elements of the cup and of the bread. And the way we're going to do this today is right here with Saga. He's got the, uh, the gluten-free. So if you need gluten-free, that is what Saga has. If you're not gluten-free, please take some of the other ones, either from Kevin or from Brad on the, uh, on the sides. I want you to come up and I want you to get the cup. You can either kneel here or you can stand there. Or you can go back to your seat, whatever your preference is. But I want you to peel the top and take the bread. And as you eat it, I want you to remember that Jesus' body was broken so that you could be made right with God. And as you peel the top for the, for the juice, I want you to drink that, remembering that his blood was shed so that you could be made righteous through Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, I, I give you this time. Lord, as, as I'm extending your invitation to your people, the invitation to partake of the cup and of the bread, the invitation to be made right with you through salvation or through repentance. God, the invitation just to commune with you. Lord, bless this time. Let it be a holy moment. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.